Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, hey Bobby. What's up, Brian? We've got a listener's choice. It's a two-part series uh, that we're going to do on just questions and answers that have come in. Uh, so we'll cover today, Bobby, probably uh, four, five, six. We'll see kind of how far we go, and then we'll kick the next ones over to the next episode. Sounds good. In upcoming, in, in a few weeks, we've got uh, a great friend and listener to the show who's going to come in and talk about her expat uh, experience. She's uh, made a couple really interesting moves over the years and just has a great story. So uh, we're really excited to get her on, and uh, I'll tell you more uh, here in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Perfect. So the first question, Bobby, is how do I know if I've got an unhealthy balance between my base salary and my commission structure? Um, obviously, that's they, they didn't share uh, any details there about what the percentages are uh, or what the dollar figures are, which is probably just as important. Um, but I would say maybe we can talk, Bobby, about kind of what the base rates we've seen in the market for enterprise sales uh, account executives and then um, we'll kind of give what we're seeing as the average for kind of the blue chip companies like the Dells and the Microsofts and uh, the Workdays and that kind of stuff. And then we can talk about kind of what the commission averages, what some of the stock plans look like. Uh, if you're in inside sales, obviously this isn't going to be one that's going to be super identifiable to you other than, um, you know, perhaps this is the next role you're trying to get into. Yeah, one thing I've, I've always thought about when this kind of comes up or uh a rep that's coming on board is trying to figure out how do you guys pay people and the conversations around, you know, what's the split, man. I, I think early on when I was a technical person going into sales, man, I wanted it to be like 90, 10, right? I wanted all that healthy protection of my number, but obviously with less risk, there's less reward. And the more I've grown uh, as a salesperson and a sales manager, you know, I, I would want, now, also in a different position in life, I wanted a whole lot more risk, or I'd take a whole lot more risk. Any sales rep who wants a whole lot of base and a little bit of variable uh, or commission, uh, I'm not too excited about talking to that person normally. Yes. And, I mean, obviously, we can understand, having been in that position to where cash is king and that base salary means everything when you're trying to buy a home or make a mortgage payments. Um, that security, you can, I can appreciate that security. The challenge is if you aspire to be a top rep and let's put kind of economic and market conditions aside, right? Like no one can predict a situation like COVID has come up that certainly impacts your opportunity to make commission and in, in most enterprise sales jobs. Um, but if you can, if you're consistently not average, if you're consistently a top performer, you're just going to make make way way more money in commission. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, there are even enterprise sales jobs that are kind of not that still have provide kind of a healthy base salary, but maybe not the top base salary, and very healthy commissions as well. So why don't we get into some of those numbers? Um, I, the Microsoft range that I continue to hear, uh, Bobby, is uh, when we were there, it was you know 115, 120 on the base front. And then um, I, I hear that it's upwards to 140, 145 
on the base front, depending on what level you are there now, um, from a um, just a base salary standpoint. Uh, commission averages uh, tend to be kind of uh, 60% of that, uh, somewhere in that range. Um, that's the same in the Googles of the world, the Salesforce of the world, the Oracles of the world are kind of in that range, somewhere between one, you know, 110 and 140, depending on what level you're at. And obviously we're talking about individual contributors here as well. Yeah, and this is those numbers you're talking about. That's the the base component, right? Yep. Um, I I would think when I when I would look to get a job, I would think about what the overall on target earnings were. All, all thinking just cash at this perspective, right? Um, but I would say with the you just mentioned with Microsoft and those other companies, you're probably in the two to two twenty range all in for cash. Of that, sixty percent is probably base. Forty percent of that overall number is probably variable, um, which means your base is probably 120 and your com- variable is the, the 80 component of that. And that variable can be split a number of different ways. Um, at Microsoft, we had a combination of revenue incentives and commitment incentives. And then uh, in my days at Dell, EMC, it was, it was all just if you sold it, you got paid for it kind of thing. So there was no commitments that you were worried about, which – pros and cons and all those different angles but that's kind of what we're talking about from a from a rate of commission and base i agree that ote on target earnings is the really important variable to look at if you're comfortable on the base front side one question that you should definitely feel comfortable asking and you should ask is what percentage of the aes hit their target last year what's kind of that trend because every every sales organization has their philosophy on what on what percent of the sales team should hit their target and they base they they model all of their expenses based off that um in some companies it's as low as they think 20 percent are going to hit the number in some companies uh i can't remember what it was at microsoft back in the day but in some companies they want 60 to 80 percent of people to hit their number so they'll, they'll know that number uh it's a few people, few people knew it in the microsoft days but their their sales comp plan said 90 percent. i mean it was they, they had built the model they had built a budget around 90 percent that completely different model by yep. run rate and how much market share they had etc um so they could probably fine-tune that but i would say guessing it wasn't written but emc was closer to that 65 70 percent mark right where they lured. I think they lured people with these big OTE numbers, um, but if you weren't very good, you weren't making a whole lot of money. Yeah. Yep. Um, there, there are when you look at bigger ticket item sales, um, and you know that's something that you should fit into the equation as well. You want to understand how many transactions they do in a year because there obviously are you know ERP or kind of primary system of record type applications are probably in the hardware world. I'm sure there's an equivalent of a, a system that may only be upgraded, you know, every, you know, every five years or, mm-hmm. or 10 years. Um, if you're in that, that kind of cell, that's probably where you, you can get a good base salary, but um, commission can be wildly variable to where you could have a, a, a scenario to where you make zero commission in one year, but you could also make, you know, seven figures in, in one year as well, if you have a, you know, good series of wins in any given year too. So 
obviously there's mileage is going to vary because it depends on what type of application you're selling and what the you know how many transactions so just seek to understand that kind of stuff if you're interviewing for it you probably already have a good feel for it but and in some cases like for me it was different making the move from microsoft to workday uh where which workday is kind of a system of record core system of record where at workday i was selling more of while a crm was a system of record it was um a, a not as big a number i guess uh system of record yeah, and, and what I I coach people still today on a regular basis, and they often can't even talk about average deal size. How many deals do I have to have? Right? I mean, it, you can't just assume you're going to make all that commission, but you have to break that down and think about. Okay, if I have to sell a million dollars worth of hardware, and your average deal size is fifty thousand dollars, I got to get twenty deals. How many deals does your normal rep close? And if that manager says five to 10 deals, well, you're not going to make all your commission. It's pretty simple math at that point. Yep. Um, the stock part is important. It should be part of uh, a net worth equation. Uh, I think, I, I think some people see it as kind of a salary component. Uh, I see it more as a net worth component. Like if you, if you are working for a growing company, which I, you know, I guess all of these tech companies are technically in that growth uh, category, then your your stock is is something that you know you want obviously growing in the 15 20% range per year. Uh, obviously that's what we all reason we join the company is we, we expect them to be kind of our hope that they are on that leading edge and that growth edge. So I would say max out your employee stock purchase program or whatever they call it at the company that you're at if they offer something like that, seek something like that out to where you can buy the stock at a discount. Not only are you buying at a discount sometimes, sometimes you're buying it at the low point in a quarter as well. So you kind of have two uh, opportunities to make a kicker there. I believe that's how it was at Microsoft. That's how it is at Workday. Um, so invest heavily in the stock program and then understand if there are uh, stock grants as well. Uh, rarely are there options unless it's you know kind of a pre-IPO situation or very early in the uh, very early uh, company being listed. Any other thoughts there? Um, try to seek to understand how the manager handles their awards. If there is, I mean, it might not be the right talk to have early on in your interviewing stages with a company, but I'd, I'd want to seek to understand if the manager was more of the peanut butter spreader of that stuff or were they going to really reward the, the ones that were overdoing their job and blowing it out. I always thought it was somewhat of a weak manager who just gave everybody 10 people on a team, all 10 people got 10%, right? The, mm-hmm. It should be an incentive, and hopefully you're working for a manager that will incent you, not just peanut butter spread that money around. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think there's a couple like big philosophies that a company should think of in stock, and you, should, you probably should ask this question, is, is a stock a leading measurement or a lagging measurement? And... Uh, I, I think stock always should be a um, it should be a leading measurement. It should be of what they believe your worth is for the company. Now, part of that is a lagging measure because your past performance should be an indicator of your future performance. But if someone has, let's say, is maybe not the perfect cultural fit or somebody that is not going to necessarily blow it out every year, they just had a unique year. That doesn't mean you don't give them stock or you don't give them a lot of stock, but you don't give them the most stock. You give them most stock to the person that has 
a history of past performance and has the best trajectory long term at the company as well because what you're yeah you're giving stock especially stock that invests you're you're kind of investing in people that you want to kind of have the quote unquote uh, golden handcuffs to uh, stick around the company golden handcuffs golden handcuffs that's right um yeah, I guess it's probably worth mentioning that stock typically vests over a period of time. So that stock is um, three, four years. Just depends on the company. All right. What are people's motivations? This is the second question, Bobby. Um, are you or are people on your team motivated most by money? So let's talk through these, Bobby, and then I'm interested to hear what yours, what your uh, motivation is here. And so I, I, I pulled down... Um, kind of six common ones, uh, plus a few of the love languages as well, because uh, I feel like these both kind of fit into this category. Um, I'll read them off uh, because I, I think for me as a manager, I, I was an individual contributor overseas and um, I didn't necessarily think or care as much about motivating and inspiring and that kind of stuff as I do in my in my present role. Um, so it has been a fun exercise over the past year to kind of get back into the mindset of, you know, not everyone's wired like me and they shouldn't be wired like me. Um, so trying to understand the psychology behind how people work and think has been an interesting experiment. First one is uh, utilitarian. Uh, so this is motivation for uh, money as well as efficiency. Um, so people in this particular uh, category are, they value um, being careful about how they spend their time, uh, their energy, and, and they want to make, they may want to make more money, but they're just, uh, they're very kind of built around how they spend their time. And, you know, that could be with their family, that could be with managing multiple projects. Um, cash may be a motivation, but they're really more motivated on kind of doing things uh, the right way and by a, proce- a very processed way. Yep. But uh, that's a, I don't know that I, I see that um, mixture as often. I see a weighted one way or the other more. The person who wants flexibility and freedom to do other things or the person that's really motivated by cash, it's normally not a 50-50 split at least, I'll say that. Yep. I, I would say like this would be, a, you're probably going to see this more on the developer front to where the developer is going to have maybe a more principled stance on this is, no, I, you know, I don't care that I'm going to have to work extra hours. This is how it should be designed. You know, like, like a, kind of an engineering mindset is the way yeah. I think about this one. Uh, second one is knowledge, motivation to learn, understand the truth about uh, something. Uh, people with a high knowledge factor may want to spend more time learning. Um, the reward to them may be like stretch opportunities, um, or they're calling it more and more kind of gigs within your company. Um, a reward for like learning or completing a test or getting a certification, um, that could be a good incentive for this type of person. And I see this more and more in the younger workforce. I've got uh, some folks that are a uh, couple that are younger on the team. And uh, obviously there's there's an end goal they have, but knowledge is kind of at the, at the top or near the top of their list. Uh, third is social, motivation to help others. Uh, proper reward for someone uh, is you know, giving them the day off to give back to the community or organizing a community event or having them organize a community events. Um, I've, I've got a gentleman on my team that this is really big to him. So whenever the, the his local office puts something together, he's either the guy doing it or he's participating in it. Um, 
so I can certainly uh, appreciate this one. Um, aesthetic, motivation for nice things, surroundings, closing, clothing, life fulfillments. Uh, my wife may say that the clothing one is important to me. Uh, reward with for someone with uh, high aesthetic, uh, maybe giving them a pass to an art gallery, gift certificate for a high-end clothing store. Um, it could be experiences. Um, that's aesthetic. So there are a few more still, but the, the key yeah. thing here is that everybody gets motivated differently and by uh, varying percentages of all of these, right? Some people could have sure. two or three of these items that are important to them, and it's it's kind of the manager's job and, and the individual contributor's job to kind of share those things with the manager, right? Like some of these aren't as obvious as the other ones. Good managers should pick up on more than than bad managers, but you might have to also just be forthright and talk about these things that motivate you share that you really are into the social aspect of things and want to help give back to the community and um, give your manager or leadership team a chance to uh, fulfill those motivations Uh, it will work wonders if you share some of these openly and some some people will say they're not one thing but they kind of are the one thing and maybe that's because they're trying not to be that one thing you know some people will say you know, I don't need you to pat me on the back, but I just need to know that I'm doing the right things. Well, what they're really saying is they need a pat on the back. <laughs> they need they need those, yes, they need those words of affirmation, and that's okay. They should. I don't feel like they should be ashamed of that because I'm that way, and I used to always say, um, "I don't need you to tell me I'm doing good." But the reality is, I it's it's not terrible when when somebody tells me that, uh, "Hey, I, I like the way this landed," or "I like the way this hit." Um, it, it puts a smile on my face, but I would, I would have been one five years ago to say, no, that doesn't matter to me. Uh, power. You see this a lot as people's, uh, with people's aspiration to kind of move up an organization. Uh, so to, this is really the motivation to control one's destiny as well as the destiny of others. Um, motivate someone to higher power is motivation is to help them lead a project, lead others, uh, help them with career planning, um, I love this one. I love people that have the right kind of, you know, if they've got kind of the right culture and the right drive and, uh, for for power. Not in the not in the weird or mean sense, but when they have that desire, man, those people can move mountains. Those people are really hardworking people many times. Yeah, the failure that I've seen here with both companies and people is implementing some sort of leadership development program, putting the people in that program, maybe putting the wrong people in that program and showing the people that you really want to get motivated, get disheartened because they see some of the the other talent in the room. Um, But it's really when the company or the leadership team doesn't really fulfill their promise around the leadership development program. Meaning it's just, it's just lipstick. It's just something they're putting on to show off. And at the end of the day that there is no true path for those people in leadership development programs. And they don't, they just keep going to these offsites and, nothing really ever comes of it, right? So if you're in that position or your company's doing that, find a way to be different. Find a way to make them mean something. Two things I'd add to that. Um, it's on you to own it too. Um, and I know it's not what you're, you're not saying, you're not, not saying that, but um, it's on you to kind of use those leadership programs as a way to bolster and build your network. Uh, don't, if they if they have to force feed it to you, it's not going to work. And the second thing, and Bobby, we've talked about this many times over the past couple of years, um, have patience in this as well. 
I felt like it was the end of the world the first time I interviewed for a manager job and didn't get that job. I thought, yeah, I, I don't know what I thought. I thought maybe there wouldn't be another job that opened up for 10 years. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. But man, thinking back at how much stress and sleepless nights I carried because I didn't get that first job or how I thought the company didn't appreciate me. And man, it's just putting that all in perspective now is, is really pretty funny. There was only one manager job, Brian, and you didn't get it. That's it. That's it. And man, it felt that way. <laughs> I know it felt that way for you too. We talked about it. I know. I know. Uh, six is tradition, motivating one's uh, one to live uh, one's life according to a set standard. Uh, this could be like religious belief, um, or it could be like a set of morals that they hold themselves very closely to. Um, and again, to your earlier point, Bobby, it, it can be it. It's always a mixture of these things. It's always a spectrum. Yeah, and this changed through my career too. So on this one, let's say when I went to work for EMC, I just started coaching my son's baseball team, and it was a non-negotiable. I was going to be gone every Tuesday and Thursday by 3 p.m. If they didn't like it, I wasn't going to take the job. I mean, it was just, it was a point in my life where that was super critical, and uh, it was not going to be negotiated. And, of course, they made, they made it work, but um, – there, there's variances of this throughout timelines in your career too. Where, where would you say that you're at right now? Uh, I'm probably up in the uh, Altarian where I, you know, my lifestyle and the things I want to do are more important timeline timeline wise. Um, a pretty common piece of that, a big piece of power still. I mean, I still want to be in control of my own destiny and, and make great things happen, but on a different scale. So big impact, small companies, and, and on people more, but uh, still a little bit of tradition too. Where I, I I will I will make events for both son and daughter, and those won't be negotiated as as well. Well, that is uh, that is the exact. Uh, those are the same three for me. So um, I, I don't have the aspiration to. I love. It. Going to utilitarian, I love the efficiency, kind of the engineering mindset. I think my son will be an engineer. He, at least that's what he talks about. I think that's probably my more natural path. I'm, I'm glad it didn't go that way, but I do I do have a very, while I, I like variety in my days and my weeks and my months, um, I use technology as an advantage um, and even pay for monthly tools that make me more efficient so I can get more done, invest in more things, be a part of more things. So that's really important for me. Um, power is unique for, for me too. I think maybe it's not, maybe it's not unique for me, but I, I don't have the desire to, to move up some sort of ladder. Uh, but, but I, um, have some, have some things that I'd like, like to do. We, we talked probably about the tech sales lab, um, uh, another business that I, I just like to, um, build and grow that that to me gives me energy uh, even though it sucks a lot of time that time it almost provides double results for me because it, it gives me energy and then as a christian that tradition is it's probably less about tradition but it falls in that category is important to me as well so really anybody that's not got those three they're just wrong <laughs> they're just wrong that's right <laughs> just kidding everyone uh, the, the love languages will just touch very, very briefly on these uh, words of affirmation, acts of service, uh, receiving gifts, quality time. If you're a manager, know kind of what, which one your team or teammates fall into. Uh, and you'll have to experiment with, with these. Some of them, they won't respond to it or they will respond to knowing that they did a good job. 
uh, so I, I try to be very intentional around these as a people leader. All right, um, let's hit one more, Bobby, and then we will uh, we'll kick the next questions off for next week. All right. Um, how about uh, we're going to jump to one? It's um, um, how do, how do I position myself to as an expert when I'm young in age? Um, and this person is both young in age and new to this specific industry. Uh, and we talk about this quite a bit, actually, in some earlier episodes about, and in fact, we did, I think we did the listener's choice or maybe in a series on being an expert. So it's worth going back and listening to uh, that series about being an expert. And I'm not suggesting that if you've, you're not going to be an expert to, compared to someone that's been in that business or selling that ware or that service or that industry for 20 years. But it being young is no excuse for not being an expert. I probably shared this before. I've got a guy on the team that's in his upper twenties um, with, it didn't take finance classes in college other than the kind of the basic finance classes. And that guy runs circles around people that are 40, 50 years old um, that even have a background in selling financials. He has taken the time. It certainly has the aptitude. You can't, you can't teach aptitude, but he has taken the time and has the aptitude to be an expert uh, on Workday Financials, and that has paid huge dividends for him from leadership programs to getting sales done. Uh, so he, while he doesn't have the gray hair, um, he has put in the time to understand what matters to prospective customers and has be- become an expert there. Um, any thoughts there, Bobby? I'm sure you've come across those people or managed those people in your career. Yeah, I it was it was really first a self reflection. I remember early on went from being a police officer to a technical guy. Really didn't know much. Um, I, I got in it at the right time when Windows 2000 just came out um, or was coming out. So it's kind of new level playing field. But in the same regard, I can remember every night going to bed with a white paper in my hand of some sort, five to ten pages on some piece of technology that was being released or coming out and. I can remember my wife always asking me, what are you always reading? Like, cause it's not a book and it looked boring and it had big, terrible words in it that no one really could sit through and read. And I, I literally used to tell her getting smarter than everybody else, because I knew that if I read one more white paper than the teammate that I had on the, on the technical team that I worked for, I would be smarter. I could be more of an expert than they were. And I think that's it. The grind is what gets you there. Um, we're not all going to be outliers. If you've read or listened to Malcolm Gladwell's book called Outliers, there's a, there's a small percentage of people that truly land in the exact right space in the exact right time on the exact right age line to become great at whatever they, they're going to do. Most of us have to work at it. And so as Brian used and the gentleman that's, that knows and can outwork everyone as it relates to finance, you you have to decide if that's what you want to be and then go go be it um and it's hard work it's not it's not always going to be fun yesterday i was driving to the golf course with my son and i asked him how far he ran today this being yesterday he said i didn't run i didn't feel like exercising and we i pick on him quite a bit but we just we just read something together that pros do the hard work when they don't want to do the hard work and if he wants to go to college to play golf He's going to have to run on days he doesn't want to run. That That is becoming an expert. That's what people do. And I, I think I read those white papers, and I think I leapfrogged a bunch of people on our team 
just because I was doing that. So it, it is possible. And that's probably my best example. Uh, yeah, I think life continues to be an experiment in delayed gratification. You didn't get gratification by staying up and reading those white papers. Um, for not me, it then, was not that day, but I did later on. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did not pay dividends that, that day, probably not even that week. Um, for me, it was learning as weird as this sounds. And I probably ought to have like a little memorial picture up. I like, I kind of have this nostalgic <laughs> uh, drive, but th- for me, it was the enterprise cowl. You remember that skew? Oh, that yeah. I, <laughs> I was, I was the expert at the enterprise cow and it got me into so many accounts and it got me so many deals closed. This is like a new SKU or offering that Microsoft, it was really just a new way to package up a bunch of products. And I knew it better than anyone in the Dallas Fort Worth area, or at least I thought it did. And, um, and that helped me sell a ton of business. And then what was uh, great about that for me career wise is that it got me, it got me an interview at Microsoft because one of the managers we were up there they had all the vendors come in and they asked if anybody had sold the enterprise cow and it somehow I had sold four and um was the only one that had sold one and then I had an interview not two or three weeks later and um and so I I attribute a lot of my career to being an expert in that one thing I you know in many ways I was probably lucky that I picked that thing but it it worked out and then very early on, it was just a lot about preparation. It was like, I, I'll never forget, I had a uh, guy we probably both still know. He was the semantic rep. And um, he was an expert in security. And back in the day, security was a still is a big deal, was a big deal back then. Just different endpoints. And uh, he, I had invited him in to meet one of the prospective customers and I had really no value to add to that meeting other than I was the one making the connection, but I brought a printed agenda. I did a prep session. Like how do you, who, you want me to open up the meeting? Do you want to open up the meeting? And like, this was very early on in my sales career, but these were important decisions and important prep times. And I remember him looking at me and saying, you're going to be successful in this industry. Um, and he, you know, he's probably in his forties at the time. I was in my mid twenties at the time, and that meant the world to me. Um, and it was all about. I was I was really an expert in meeting preparation at that point, which is a very easy skill set, but still an important skill set at that age. Well, you just said something I've been thinking a lot about lately, and haven't really known how to translate it. But how many, what I would call rock star reps, people who have been making money hand over fist the last ten years not preparing, just winging it, having good customer bases. They're sitting around now, quarantined, looking at their customer list, going, oh, my God, how am I going to sell to these people? Like, they they thought they were experts. They played a big game. They talked a big game. They probably have some gray hair, and they're sitting around going, "Uh uh-oh, like, what do I do? And it's something that – you can't that that guy knew you're gonna be great because you were doing the right things to be great. And I think um, almost every coaching conversation that I have nowadays is a conversation about getting back to the basics. Like, why aren't you doing this? This is how you get to the the, the pot of gold. It's not just luck. Like, let's go. Um, and if you're one of those people out there that might be gray haired and off your game a little bit, don't hesitate to give me a call. Uh, we will work on that together. Um, but there are ways to become an expert when you might've fallen off your game a little bit as well. Yeah. And if you're trying to figure out what that expertise is, like Bobby said, reach out to us. Happy to talk it through. That's the, those are the funnest minty conversations I have are when they have a really thoughtful approach to like, what, 
What should I focus in? Here's what I think I like doing. Uh, how should I invest my time? Like come prepared, of course, but those are really fun Mincy phone calls. For sure. Well, with that, let's wrap for the day and we'll uh, jump into part two next week. As always, average is the enemy. Average sucks. Don't be average. Uh, thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week, average is the enemy. Thank <laughs> you.